I wonder what it takes to get yourself to the point where you're willing to suffer on that level. Like by the end of this match, those boys are just like asleep on their feet. They got injuries. They got. I remember a, a couple of weeks ago in a match, uh, 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 one of the French forwards like broke his cheekbone. Like that's crazy. And then he was playing the next week. Why would they suffer and struggle and fight in the way that they do? Like injuries, all the hard training, the weeks of being away from your, your family and your loved ones and your kids and all that kind of stuff. And they keep doing it and they keep struggling and they keep suffering. And I wonder when it comes to our lives, like what do we count as something that's worth suffering for? What, 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 do, we th- what do we say, well, that's worth hard work, that's worth struggle, that's worth even suffering for? If I said, uh, would you be willing to suffer for your job? Probably not many of us would be willing to suffer for our job. But if I said, would you be willing to suffer for your best friend? You'd probably say, yes, I'd suffer for my best friend or my kids. But for all of us who follow Jesus, uh, Colossians really shows us that there's, there's only one thing truly worth suffering for, and that is that, that Christ is proclaimed. This is a theme across Paul's uh, ministry, not just in his letter to the Colossians, but actually in, in all of his letters, especially like this one, the ones that he wrote when he was in prison, physically suffering that Jesus would be made known. In verse 28, right in the middle of our passage this morning, he says three words, him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. Now, this is the, this is the bread and butter of the, of the Christian life. In our words and actions, we proclaim a person, the person of Jesus. He's not saying we proclaim a religion or we proclaim a philosophy or a set of ideas or, or uh, you know, 10 rules for life or any of that kind of stuff. We proclaim a person. And this is why, as we saw last week, that, that Paul goes to great lengths to show us the greatness of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. And it's the greatness of Christ that when we have that vision of him, that when we see he's great and supreme, that, that, that when we see he is enough, that leads us to proclaim him. That suddenly he becomes something worth struggling for. Just like the teams in the World Cup. They see the prize as something of, of, of dying on a, a rugby pitch for. They see that World Cup trophy and they think that is worth suffering for. And when we see the supremacy of Christ, we see that he is to be proclaimed and that he is worthy of struggling and suffering for. And likewise, I suppose, if we, if we don't see Jesus in that, if we don't see the supremacy of him in that way, if we don't see that big, full vision of Jesus, that we probably won't want to or see the need to proclaim him. But in this passage that Claire read for us this morning, coming off the back of the supremacy of Christ, Paul then gives us this model for ministry. He's saying, look how amazing Jesus is. And now then, then, then look at what this means for my ministry. This model for ministry that he gives us in this, this passage, it's not just for the pastors or, or the, the, the leaders or the preachers. It's for all of us who follow Jesus. Because a, a minister... It's just a servant, right? That's what it means to be a minister of Jesus. You're a servant. So for all of us here, Christians, you are a minister. <laughs> this is what we call, the, it's a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. That we all are servants of Jesus. We looked at this when we looked at um, our vision for the year. Um, we looked at discipleship. We saw that all disciples of Jesus are disciple makers. That's why we focused on discipleship and evangelism uh, this year in our vision, humbly depending on Jesus to grow in him and make him known. We do that by proclaiming him. 
And it simply means that, that we serve to others what we have received. We've received Jesus, so then we take Jesus and offer him to other people. And so Paul, after showing his readers that Jesus is supreme over all, he now gives us, Christian ministers, a model for ministry, a model for serving him, a model for following him. And he shows us that we need to be prepared to suffer, steward, and struggle as we follow Jesus. We need to be prepared to suffer, steward, and struggle for Christ. Uh, I called this alliteration, but uh, Duncan shared with me that there's a special name when they're all S's, but I can't remember what it is. I don't know. It's not just alliteration. It's a Esalism or something. I don't know. That's a made-up word. Let's look at this first one. We need, to, we need to be prepared to suffer for Christ, just like Paul. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, because in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, this can be a bit of a confusing verse um, at first glance, because Paul says that in his suffering, he's actually filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. So does this mean that there is something incomplete about Christ's suffering? No, not at all. What did Jesus say when he died on the cross? What were his final words before he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? He said, it is finished. That meant that the price for sin had been paid and there's nothing more to be added to it. 1 Peter 3.18 says that for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There is nothing lacking in the atonement of Jesus. His suffering is enough for anyone who believes to be saved. But Paul is talking about Christian suffering, the kind of suffering that is promised, yes, promised to all those who follow Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, they will have to what? Take up their cross and follow me. It's not just come and follow me and have an easy life. It's come and follow me and take up your cross. Likewise, in Philippians 1, 29, Paul says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. This is something that is promised to us, is suffering. And so clearly Christ suffered and Christians suffer. But our suffering is not to, to bring salvation in the way that Jesus did. Our suffering is the suffering that happens as we proclaim him. Him we proclaim. As we share the gospel throughout our lives, we will suffer because of it through opposition, or even persecution. This is what Paul is talking about. The prize is not the Webb Ellis Trophy of the World Cup. The prize is proclaiming Christ. The prize is Christ himself. And so as we strive for that prize, we will be prepared to suffer for it. John Calvin, the re uh, reformer, said, if Christ be not preached, he is still in the grave. What does he mean by that? He means that, well, if, if people don't hear that Jesus has died for our sins, then, then what was the point of him dying? The whole point is people need to hear it so they can believe it. So if Christ isn't preached, then he may as well still be dead. So what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is the proclamation. It's the sharing the message. 
Christ's suffering was to pay the price of sin, but our suffering is to proclaim Christ. Remember verse 28. If you remember three words, remember this. Him we proclaim. His suffering won our freedom and appeased the wrath of God, but our suffering is to share the gospel. And we won't advance the gospel without suffering. It takes sacrifice. Sometimes it takes opposition and persecution. It's going to cost you time and money and resources. It's going to affect your career decisions, your family decisions, your friendship decisions, who you live with, where you hang out, what you do. And we're called to suffer. That means that to prioritize not just our comfort and our own advancement, but actually to switch this way and say, I'm going to prioritize that Christ is proclaimed here. Proclaimed here. Just look at Paul's life. If you've ever looked at Paul's life, I mean, through his letters, yes, but then even the second half of the book of Acts, he's, he's, he's imprisoned a lot. <laughs> we, don't know how, we actually don't know how many times he was imprisoned. A lot. Shipwrecks. He was beaten up. Uh, riots. All these kinds of things. And look at our brothers and sisters in, in places like Turkey. We've talked about that before, um, where there is real persecution and sharing the gospel. Like, like our friends in, in Turkey right now, uh, you know, this morning, they're meeting it and they have to have armed policemen with machine guns stand outside the door for fear of persecution. But this is how God intends it to be. And you're like, well, why would God intend that his gospel be shared through suffering? What, what is the point of that? I think there's lots of reasons and, and I'm more than happy to talk about that some, sometime. But I think that one of the reasons is that there is nothing that speaks quite so loudly to the world as the joyful suffering of Christians. Because the world has no answer for that, right? Because our world, what does our world prioritize above everything else? We might think it's money, we might think it's power, we might think it's whatever, but it's actually comfort. Our, our world, we saw this especially through the COVID pandemic, our world seeks comfort. Any kind of discomfort is to be avoided at all costs. We just want a comfortable life. And we want to make our lives as comfortable and easy as possible. That's the point of earning money or gaining power or recognition or fame or whatever it may be. But when we are opposed and persecuted and still continue to share the, the gospel joyfully, that speaks loudly to those around us. Just this week, I was hearing Travis talk about his friend, your friend or roommate or something in college, and he's like, this guy's like, you know, slagging him off all the time for sharing the gospel, and eventually becomes a Christian. He's like, what spoke to me was like, you guys still want to be my friend, even though I'm telling you that you're idiots for believing the gospel. And if our single purpose in life is that Christ is proclaimed, then we will gladly suffer to make it happen. Now, most of us haven't faced physical suffering or physical persecution for the proclamation of Christ. But I'm not a prophet, but I think that's coming soon in our country. If Jesus doesn't come back, it's completely possible that, that here we will face physical suffering because we proclaim the name of Jesus. That's completely possible in our lifetimes. And we need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared to suffer for Christ. And then we need to go one step further and be prepared to embrace suffering and rejoice in it. Be joyful in it. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. <coughs> Excuse me. And you might think, Paul, are you crazy? Because like I said, we're so conditioned to avoid suffering, to seek comfort. But Paul gladly suffers for Christ. What did I say was the one thing we'll all gladly suffer for? The people we love, right? 
There's nothing. There's, there's literally no end to the suffering I would go through for my wife. But Paul, and Paul gladly suffers for Christ because he loves Christ. Because his affections are, this is not a religion. You think all those disciples who were martyred after Jesus was, was ascended to heaven, they, they would have done that if, if they weren't in love with Jesus, if he wasn't their greatest priority. And we will all gladly suffer for what we love. We are in Christ, and so we will suffer like him, and that is a great joy. We can be joyful in our suffering for Christ because it means that we are in Christ. If you go and read Acts chapter 5, this is kind of one of the, you see the first kind of persecution of the, uh, of the church. And um, the apostles are arrested by the, by the religious leaders and they're put in prison. And then uh, God miraculously frees them from prison and then they have to come before the court and all that kind of stuff. And when they're finally kicked out, it says that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And I wonder, do we love Christ enough to suffer for him? It's a hard question, isn't it? But maybe we need to be challenged every now and again. Will we gladly suffer for him as we make him known? And more importantly, is our view of Jesus big enough? Do we see the supremacy of Christ that we will actually count it a joy when we suffer for his sake and for his name? That's the first thing. We need to be prepared to suffer for Christ. But also, we need to steward the word of Christ. Look at verses 25 to 28. I'm going to read them again. Um, 25, of which I became a minister, um, a minister of the church, he's saying, uh, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. His job there, his job that's been given to him is to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, to the saints, to us, the church. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul is saying here, <coughs> excuse me, it's the job of Christians to proclaim Christ and to apply the word of God to the hearts of the people. That's what he's kind of, if we break that down, that's what he's saying. To proclaim Christ and to apply the word of Christ. These things that have been revealed to us, we then apply to each other. In other words, we are to be stewards of the word. So at risk of someone shouting bingo, I don't know if it was on the sheet or not. In Lord of the Rings, was that in, on the sheet? Oh, good. I, this week I was like, what is on this sheet? What can I put in here? I took a Man United one out, just so you know. Um, in Lord of the Rings, the steward of Gondor was not the king, right? And yet he used the authority of the throne of Gondor to, to, to lead and protect the people of Gondor. Or at least he should have anyway, he wasn't a very good steward. In the same way, we are not the king. We do not sit on the throne, but we use the authority of the king through this, through his word, to make the will of the king known. See, we, we have nothing in and of ourselves to offer the world or each other. 
We simply steward the word and let God work through his word in the lives of others. Notice Paul says that he became a steward of what he was given, right? That's in, um, that's in verse 25. He became a steward of what he was given. And so we too, likewise, we serve what we have been given. Uh, a pastor friend of mine, Tony, he, he says, he used this analogy of a waiter, right? A waiter in a restaurant. Now, a waiter doesn't take the food from the chef and then like on the way to the table kind of mess with it and change it and maybe add things to it. No, a good waiter takes the food from the chef and then presents it to the, 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 the consumer exactly as the chef intended it to be. And when it comes to us as followers proclaiming Christ, our job is not to change the word of God. Our job is not to try and offer up opinions or try and apply our wisdom. Our job is simply to take what we have received from God and serve it directly to others. And this applies both outside the church and inside the church. Firstly, outside the church, the best way to serve the gospel to unbelievers is to serve it exactly the way we received it. We don't need to try and make the gospel relevant. We don't, we don't need to soften its language. We don't even have to make it less offensive. The other night uh, when I was with a couple of the guys from Grace Point, we were in town and, and I ended up having this... Um, uh, he laughs at me because this always happens to me anytime I go out, but I ended up having this gospel conversation with a couple of people and... and and this guy who doesn't believe any of it, he was saying, no, no, I, I want to hear the hard things. I want to hear it. This is, what, this is how we best serve the world in need is by, by just delivering what we have received. Why? Well, another pastor friend of mine, Philip, he says, because the word of God does the work of God. The word of God does the work of God. It's not, and I can say to be like, oh yeah, like I'm gonna make this more attractive. You know, I'm gonna put some... I'm going to put some makeup on it and make it look nice. No, the the Word of God does the work of God. We're just the conduit by which God delivers the Word of God. So if you have somebody in your life that you've been trying to share the gospel with, or maybe you've been friends with for a long time, uh, maybe a friend or a colleague or something, the best thing you can do, actually, is just to share Scripture with them. I've seen this actually happen. Just saying, hey, we've been talking about this for a while. Would Would you like to just read the Bible with me, and then we'll both figure out what this is saying, what this is about. That's the best thing we can do. We're not smarter than God. I think Caitlin already said that this morning. We don't know culture or our friends better than the Holy Spirit. We don't have better words than the Bible. So we can confidently just serve the word of God as we have received it. Just like the chef, the customer in the restaurant receives all the goodness and and creation and deliciousness and the flavors that the chef has prepared when the waiter is a faithful steward and delivers what he has been given. Our job is simply to serve Christ. We are servants of Christ by serving Christ. But also works inside the church. See, the best thing we can do for our brothers and sisters is serve each other the word of God too, right? Um, every now and again in our church, I'll hear over, not that I'm eavesdropping, I'll hear of conversations that are happening. People will say, oh, we had this conversation, that conversation. Um, conversations, and people are trying to figure out this issue or this, that, and the other. And so often what we do is, is we apply our wisdom. We apply our opinions. So often we go straight to, to our way of thinking. 
But again, are we smarter than Jesus? No. If you say yes to that, we need to have a conversation. Do we have better wisdom than the God who is eternal and created the whole universe? No. Now, imagine if at halftime last night in the, the rugby match, a point down, and it's a tight game, and there's a fan in the crowd, and he's already wearing the jersey, so he's halfway there. So he pulls on his shorts and a pair of rugby boots, and he goes into the changing room, decides to join the squad. And, and the coach is telling them uh, exactly what he wants them to do. He equips them with everything they need to go out and implement and to win the game. But then this fan thinks, well, you know what? Uh, I've watched a few rugby matches in my day, and I probably have some wisdom to offer here. I mean, I've never actually set up a rugby team. I've never played a game of rugby. But I watched a few matches, so maybe I'll contribute. How do you think that would go? It would not go very well at all. See, the fan doesn't have wisdom experience, but the coaches are able to equip the players with everything they need to go and carry it out. And look at what Paul says. In verse 26, he says, The mystery that was hidden for generations has been revealed to the saints, to us. He goes on in verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, that's those outside of Israel, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You know what this means? Paul is telling us that we have received everything that we need in Jesus to warn everyone, to teach everyone with all wisdom so that everyone can be mature in Christ. In other words, because Christ is in us, we have everything we need to know how to live because the mystery of God's plan has been revealed to us in Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. How has that been revealed to us? How has God plan, God's plan been revealed to us? in the person of Jesus, as shown to us in the Scriptures. This means that in every situation in life, we don't apply our wisdom. We don't ask, oh, what's the, uh, how do I need to think about this? We, we ask, what does the Bible say about this? <laughs> what, what does Jesus say about this? We point each other to the Bible and we say, let's see what Jesus said about this. Now, this especially applies when it's difficult subjects. And by the way, there's some difficult subjects coming up in, in, in Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to have to ask the question, what does, what does God say about this? Not what does the world tell me about this or what does my own intuition tell me about this? All we're going to do is say, what does the Bible say about this? When we think about the Israel-Palestine conflict, or we travel, try to navigate the world of gender and sexuality, or even how we view ourselves and others, Search the scriptures. Steward the word. Take what has been given to you and apply it. Offer it to each other. Because everything we need has been revealed to us. And I love that he says all wisdom. He doesn't just say uh, some wisdom, but all wisdom. Isn't that cool? This week I did the, um, the black taxi tour of Belfast with, with uh, our friends from Grace Point. Um, if you've never done it, I highly recommend it. I had never done it before. And it was really interesting doing it as somebody that was born into the middle of the Troubles and, and grew up here and all that kind of stuff. And I, I found it really tough and emotional in places. Um, but towards the end of the taxi, uh, uh, the tour, we were on our way back into town. I asked the driver, I just said, what do, you, what do you think is the hope? What's the hope for the future of this city and this island? 
And his answer made me really sad. Because his answer was basically young people. That's what he said. He said, it's the next generation who are going to grow up without hatred in their hearts. And I'm like, good luck with that, because we all have hatred in our hearts. It's, it's about young people growing up without division and all that kind of stuff. And listen, I pray for that, and I long for that. But it makes me sad, because surely there must be more hope to offer than the next generation. But what does Paul say? What hope can we offer one another? What is the hope of glory? It is Christ in you. That's what he says. This is the Bible saying. This is not me. This is, this is the, riches, uh, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this means that we have real hope to offer the world. We have the hope of glory. We have Christ in us. This is what we offer the world, and it's what we offer each other. Now, how amazing is this? I love this. Because when, when our sister or brother comes to us with fear or doubts or questions or anxiety or pain or maybe even hopelessness. You know what we get to do for one another? We get to, by simply stewarding what we've been given, by simply offering them the word of God, we get to offer each other the hope of glory. Now, isn't that so cool? It's not like, well, maybe you should think about that problem this way or I hope it gets better or like hang in there, chief, or any of that stuff. It's actually, I can offer you because Christ is in me, I can offer you the hope of glory and I know that when I need it, you offer me the same thing. This is why we always say there is nothing we uh, can offer people except Jesus. There's nothing we can offer each other except Jesus. Like why would you serve people beans on toast when you can offer them a Michelin star meal or a big steak or whatever it is you want to eat? good. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is when Peter says in John chapter 6, 68, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. We get to offer each other the hope of glory. And I think that's pretty cool. As we steward the word of God, we are offering people the hope of glory, which is Christ in us. And when we consistently do this, what is the result? We'll look at verse 28 that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity in Christ is the goal, right? As we, as we steward the word of God in and among and to and for one another, we will grow in our maturity in Christ. That's going to happen. What is maturity in Christ? Well, what is maturity? It's growing up, right? That's what we put in our, we put in our uh, vision for this year, to grow in Him. It's becoming more established, more firm, uh, think of a, a plant. Um, we have, uh, we got these uh, little plants at Laura and Duncan's wedding. And uh, that was you guys, right? So cool. Mine did not do so well. Haley's is like this giant plant now. <laughs> um, she was looking after the books, so I blame her. But, um, but, but you, you plant this little seed and then a wee shoot starts to appear. And begin with, you have to keep it in the greenhouse or inside because it can't be... You have to protect it from the cold and the slugs and the birds and all that kind of stuff. But as the plant grows, it becomes more and more hardy and established. And, and after a time of nurturing, you can put it outside and, and, and nothing's going to affect it. Like it can withstand the cold in the winter time and all that kind of stuff. This is a bit like maturity in Christ. You see, given the context of this passage, I think Paul is, is talking about being rooted and grounded, which we're going to come back to you next week, being rooted and grounded enough to endure suffering. Part of maturity in Christ is, is Christ-likeness. This is the goal for all of us. And here's the thing. Being Christ-like 
means that we will suffer like Christ. Let me say that again. Being Christ-like means that we will suffer like Christ. Not that that's the point of Christ-likeness, but becoming more and more like him will by necessity mean that we will suffer just like he did. Like we saw earlier, because we are in him, we will suffer like him. And, and as we live more and more like he did, the suffering and opposition will come. And so we endure and continue in the faith, stewarding the word of God, because this is the path towards maturity. One commentator said, maturity in Christ is every part of the person oriented towards Christ. That's it. It's, it's every, he actually goes on to say good and bad, Orient toward Christ. And I love this idea that every part of me is just like Jesus. Every part of me is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Even the things I don't understand or the things I get wrong, it's Jesus. I'm pointing towards him. The idea of maturity here, um, some translations will translate this word mature as, as perfection. Some will translate it as maturity. The idea is completion. It's, it's fulfillment. It's like we're on a journey and, and there's an end point when, when you ever get that feeling, I don't know, when you complete a game and it gets, you see the 100% completion, man, that's so good. Um, that's what it's like. And there is a day coming, like a point in the horizon that we're all moving towards, and that, that day is the return of Jesus, and he will make that fulfillment, that being full in him, a reality for all of us. If you follow Christ, you will come into the fullness of him one day. And that's guaranteed. But along the way, it's going to take being rooted and grounded in him so that we can endure the suffering. Until that day comes, we are being made more and more into his likeness and being more and more established in him, which just like the plant means that sometimes we will suffer the storms and the cold weather and even the pests that come along to try and destroy us. But our goal is fixed. And in Christ, we cannot fail. So we continue on, stewarding the word of Christ so that we can make him fully known and present each other mature in him. Isn't that so cool? This idea that like someday we get to go, look at my sister, look at my brother. And Jesus is going to be like, that's amazing. I love that idea. So we suffer for Christ. We steward for his word. And finally then, we struggle for the church of Christ. Um, we see this in the last section. Bear in mind that um, when Paul wrote this letter, there were no verses or chapters. So some of the, sometimes in the Bible, you get these chapter divides that you wouldn't necessarily put there. So verse 29, for this I toil. He's toiling for everyone to be mature in Christ. For this I toil. Toil is not a hard word, uh, not an easy word. It's a hard word. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of, a of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. See that? The understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery is Christ. It's always about Christ. Verse 3, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness 
in your faith. Think about a farmer growing not just one plant, but, but acres and acres of plants. What does it take for a farmer to ensure that his plants grow to maturity? It takes toil. It takes struggle. We sit down to our bowl of cornflakes and, and we take for granted all that is meant for the corn to be planted and, and grown and harvested uh, to be reached in our plates. The farmer rises early in the morning in spring and spends days plowing the, the fields and, and preparing the soil. They work hard in sowing the seeds and fertilizing them and protecting them from the birds and the pests. They toil to remove all the weeds so that the crop can grow to be healthy. They're the first up and the last to go to bed in harvest. See, maturity takes toil and struggle. And as ministers of Jesus, we are called to struggle for his people, for each other, the church. Listen to the way Paul talks about people he hasn't even met face to face. He says, I toil for you. I struggle for you. I want you to know how, how great the struggle has been. We work hard to steer the word of God with one another so that we can present one another mature in Christ to him one day. You see, we often think that serving the church is, is serving on the welcome team or the AV team, uh, kids team, and all these things are great. And by the way, we need more people on all those things, so <laughs> do that. But, but there is more to serve in the body of Jesus than this. Serving the body of Jesus means working hard. This word toil and struggle, it's this ongoing contending for, working for. This means that, that, that we will continually do this for our brothers and sisters through constantly sharing the hope of glory with them. See, maturity in Christ is a goal so precious that it is worthy of our struggle. Maturity in Christ is the end goal and it is worth contending for. It is worth toiling for. It is worth struggling for. What does it look like to struggle or toil for the church? Sorry, Lauren, it's not going to be 35 minutes today. Um, uh, what does it look like to struggle for the church? It, it means encouraging each other in love. That's the first part. See this in verse 2. See, when we are in Christ, we will desire one another to be encouraged. One of the best things you can do for each other's maturity in Christ is to encourage each other. We often get frustrated with our brothers and sisters because they make the same mistakes over and over again, or they rub us up the wrong way, or they do things the way we wouldn't do, or they, they judge us, or whatever it may be. But Paul says, this is part of struggling and toiling for the church. And we don't just put up with each other, we encourage one another. If you see your sister struggling in your faith, your job isn't just to ignore that or to tell them off. Your job is to encourage them. This is one of the best things we can do for each other. The command to encourage one another appears a hundred times in the New Testament. A hundred times. 27 books in the New Testament, 100 times, that means that it appears on an average of almost four times per book. This is a really big deal for the New Testament writers. When's the last time you encouraged your brother or sister? Uh, Ray Ortland, who's a pastor in America, he says that, that anyone you encourage will not have had too much encouragement that day. I love that. You can't over-encourage someone. And as we encourage one another, what happens? We become knit together in love. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Not just putting up with one another or tolerating one another. 
being knit together in love. And, and being knit together in love is a mark of maturity in the church. Because maturity says, I love you not because you're like me, or I love you because we get on or we have the same interests. But maturity says, I love you because we are in Christ. So this week, make it your goal to encourage your brothers and sisters. Sometimes text, text message is all it takes. Another way we struggle for the church, Paul says, is that we assure each other in the gospel. We see this in verses 2 and 3. As we are knit together in love through encouraging one another, the result is that we move towards reaching the fullness of assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, here's the thing about growing in maturity in Christ. You cannot and will not ever reach the, 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 the limits of knowledge of him, right? The ancient writers say that when Alexander the Great saw the breadth of his domain, he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. He had reached the limits of what he could do. This will never happen as we explore the far reaches of Jesus. As we enjoy him, we will never be bored of the gospel. Never bored of it. We will never reach the end of the gospel. We will explore Jesus forever and ever and still not reach the ends of his beauty and glory. And this is why we need to keep on assuring one another of the gospel. This is why we struggle for one another. If your brother is drifting away, remind him of the gospel. If your sister is struggling in her life, remind her of the gospel. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He is in you. He is for you. This message is everything we need what we need for life, for work, for parenting, for friendship, for sickness, for health, for grief, for celebration, for all of life. The gospel is not just a message for non-believers. I said this a hundred times and I'll say it again. The gospel is not, is not just a message by which we are saved. It is a message by which we live. Thirdly, as we struggle for the church, we protect one another from false teaching. Verse four, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, one of the reasons Paul was writing this letter was because <coughs> Epaphras apparently had made Paul aware of some false teaching that was creeping into the church. The Christians there were being tempted to put their trust in other things outside of Jesus. And so Paul says they need to be careful in case they become deluded with plausible arguments. Now, I really need to point out that this is just a danger for that ancient church. It's a huge problem for us too, a huge danger through social media and, and the phones in our pocket that, by the way, we pay far too much attention to, myself included. We have access to all kinds of teaching and ideologies. And the real danger for us isn't from the openly anti-Christian teaching, but it's from the teaching that would claim to be Christian, but at the same time subtly uh, dilutes or distorts the gospel. Paul says we need to be on the lookout for plausible arguments because the implausible arguments are, are, are much easier to spot. Right, An implausible argument is much easier to, to see and, and be on your guard against. But it's when we come up against the, the nearly truths or the, the half-truths, things that seem that they, they could be true or maybe even should be true, that's the real danger. Just this week, uh, this week on Instagram, I, I saw a video of a, of a pastor <laughs> in inverted commas, <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that. And he was teaching on the cross of Jesus. And, and everything he said, I was like, that's great. That's buying on the money. Until he subtly slipped in that Jesus did not die 
to appease the wrath of God. And I was like, sorry, what? You almost got away with that. He almost got away with that. And I was like, no, no, no. That's the opposite of what the Bible says. The wrath of God on Jesus was laid. And so we need to be careful. We need to be alert and alert one another to these dangers. We need to protect each other from plausible arguments. And see how being knit together in love plays a part in this. If we are on the fringes of the church, not being constantly encouraged and reminded of the gospel, it will be easier for us to become susceptible to plausible arguments. Right? The Bible says that our enemy prowls around like a lion, seeking who he can, who he can devour. Right? You ever watch the David Attenborough thing? You'll know that the lion doesn't just jump into the middle of the herd of the buffalo and start rah, attacking all around it. No, it prowls around and it sees the ones on the edge, maybe the slow ones, the weak ones, or the wounded ones. And so we need to be knit together in love, being con- consistently encouraged and assured of the gospel. How many people have you known, have we known, who at one time has stopped being part of the church and before long they've drifted away from Jesus completely? And as we struggle for the church, we will protect one another from false teaching. Finally then, and I'm nearly done, Paul says that as we struggle for the church, we will rejoice in each other's faith. I love this. I love the love that he has for this church he's never met face to face. I love it. He says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Um, the scholars tell us that, that these two terms, good order and firmness, they're actually military terms, right? Often the Bible writers would do this. They'll use Greek words from everyday language that people would have known and apply, apply theological, theological meanings to them. It means that you know, the, the camp is in good order. There's good discipline. You see, Paul rejoices that even though his brothers and sisters in these places are under attack from this false teaching, that they, they're standing firm, that, that Jesus is still being proclaimed, that the word is still being taught, that the church is still knit together in love, and they are on the lookout for this false teaching, which hasn't yet fully taken hold. And these are reasons to rejoice and be happy. These are things to be thankful for. When we see our brothers and sisters growing in Jesus and being firm in their faith, we should rejoice. It should actually be a source of joy for us when we see each other maturing, growing in Jesus. And that in itself is an indicator that we are growing in Jesus. What does it mean to struggle for the church? Well, if we add all this up, it means this. As we grow in maturity, we will encourage each other in love. We will assure one another of the gospel. We will protect each other from false teaching and we will rejoice in each other's faith. And I just want to finish with this. As we, as we sum up this, this model for ministry, what's worth suffering for? What's worth stewarding well? What's worth struggling for? As we saw last week, Jesus is supreme. Everything is by him and through him and for him. And it's this big, big view of Jesus, right? It's when we, we have that view of Jesus that it means that we will gladly suffer for him and we will gladly steward his word and we will gladly struggle for his church and we will do these things together. And I want to point out that this is all hard. It sounds hard and it is hard. It's called suffering. It's called serving and stewarding. It's called struggling. Nothing about this is easy and nor is it meant to be. But look at what Paul says in verse 29. Because we kind of skipped over that a little bit. For this I toil, struggling, 
with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, Paul knows it's work, it's hard, it's struggle, but he does not, he's not the one who's struggling. He's not the one who's doing the work. It is God's energy powerfully working within Paul. It's kind of the same word, his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's kind of like God's power is powerfully working. <laughs> That's what he's saying. God's power is powerfully working. You might have, ever, I don't know if you ever heard that phrase, do your best and let God do the rest. You ever heard that? Paul would be like, man, that is rubbish. That is some rubbish. He'd be saying, my best efforts are worthless. He would say, I contribute nothing. Paul isn't doing his best and then letting God top up his energy tanks. No, the energy is God's. It's God's power powerfully working in him. And this is good news for us. I love this. It is the power of God working in us as we suffer for him and steward the word of God and struggle for the church. Listen, the Christian life is, I always say this, it's, it's not, it's, it is simple, but it's not easy. It's hard work, but it's not our work. This is the great thing. It is God working in us and through us. The fact that any Christian sticks at it is not a testament to, to their faithfulness or, or their stickability. It's testament to God's faithfulness. And this is where the rugby analogy collapses a little bit. See, when we get up in the morning, ready for another day, we don't have to give ourselves a team talk to try and muster up courage or energy. No, we ask God once again to work powerfully in us. So this week, as we set out again to, to proclaim Jesus, our prayer is simply this. We just simply say, Lord, I brought nothing to my salvation. And I have nothing to bring to my life in you. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So recognizing my weakness, once again, Lord, work powerfully in me to suffer for Christ, to steward the word of Christ, and to struggle for the church of Christ. And it's all for his glory, because he is supreme. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are supreme. Just because we've moved on from that sermon last week, I pray, Lord, that we would never move on from your supremacy. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to us consistently and constantly in ways that, that make us see your beauty, your supremacy, your glory, your greatness. Lord, may that motivate us to uh, desire to proclaim you. Our only job in life, the only thing truly worth suffering and struggling for is the proclamation of Christ. Father, I pray for those of us who are feeling weak and tired this morning. Lord, that this wouldn't be a message that discourages us or becomes burdensome, but that we would see that it's actually you that works in us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that even following you is not down to our own strength. I love that, Lord. Work powerfully in all of us. In whatever situations we find ourselves in this week, whether it's with our brothers and sisters and, and we need to encourage them and steer the word of God well, or whether it's with people outside the church that we just need to share the gospel with, Lord. Lord, let your word do its work powerfully among us. Um, and we pray these things for the glory of Jesus. Uh, Lord, we long to grow up to maturity in you. We praise you that because of your work in us, that will happen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Uh, guys, we're, we're going to, as we do every Sunday, come to the Lord's table and